At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. At this point, I think it is safe to say uh, that we have all seen at least, you know, a few clips of Trump's infamous speech, certainly this one here on January the 6th, the morning of. And we have seen this selfie video that Trump's adult son, Donald Jr., filmed backstage uh, in that tent on that day. We have heard countless hours of testimony from witnesses about the discussions of how armed the crowd was or whether Trump himself would get to walk with the protesters as they made their way up to the Capitol. It is easy to feel like we have learned all that we can about what happened on that fateful day, or at least, um, you know, that there wouldn't be any more surprises. But that would be a mistake because today we may have learned something jaw-dropping and entirely new. Today, The Guardian released some of the first excerpts of former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchins' new memoir. And in that memoir, Hutchinson alleges that Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani groped her. He did it in that tent behind where Trump gave his speech on January the 6th. She writes, quote, I find Rudy in the back of the tent, the corners of his mouth split into a Cheshire cat smile, waving a stack of documents. He moves towards me like a wolf closing in on its prey. We have the evidence. It's all here. We're going to pull this off, Hutchinson describes Rudy as saying. And then, quote, Rudy wraps one arm around my body, closing the space that was separating us. I feel his stack of documents pressed into the small of my back. I lower my eyes and watch his free hand reach for the hem of my blazer. By the way, he says, fingering the fabric, I'm loving this leather jacket on you. His hand slips under my blazer, then my skirt. Hutchinson then describes Giuliani's fingers trailing up her thigh, all allegedly right in front of Trump's other lawyer, John Eastman. Now, political advisor for Giuliani has called this allegation a disturbing lie and said that Giuliani will pursue all appropriate legal actions against Hutchinson. So I am sure the validity of this allegation will be fought over aggressively in the coming days and weeks. But even just the allegation itself is a good reminder that this chapter This ugly chapter of American history is still being written. Today, in the Georgia case against Trump and the other 18 defendants um, that were allegedly involved in the attempt to overturn the 2020 election, today, in Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's office filed a notice with the court claiming that six of the defense attorneys in the case may have conflicts of interest. Now, that may be legally interesting later down the road, but what jumped out at everyone who read that filing was this. As part of the DA's office uh, and the explanation of these potential conflicts, the office included a partial list of potential witnesses they might call uh, in the case. And on that list was this guy, pro-Trump attorney Lynn Wood. Now, Wood was one of the individuals whom the special grand jury that investigated the case suggested that Fonnie Willis should have indicted. But ultimately, for whatever reason, she did not. Now, Mr. Wood is claiming to the press today that he has not flipped against President Trump, but he is saying that he has been told to expect a subpoena. So whether he is cooperating or not, he may be testifying and that we know. And there is a lot we could still learn from him. Wood, of course, filed his own lawsuit trying to stop the certification of the election in Georgia. And he pushed 
content online that suggested the election had been rigged. But I have a feeling that prosecutors might be more interested in him as a host. And here's what I mean by that. These are some images of the former slave plantation that Mr. Wood owns in South Carolina. Unbelievably, one of the buildings Wood owns down there is still to this day called Cotton Hall. And after the 2020 election, Lynn Wood claims that he invited the likes of Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, a few others down to stay over for multiple nights and use the plantation as a home base for planning their efforts to overturn our election. Quote, they set up in my living room and one of the sunrooms. They looked like election central. They had computers, whiteboards. They were working. Now, Mike Flynn stayed so long that no that November he ended in November, he ended up carving the woods Thanksgiving turkey. Wood could be a very useful witness to prosecutors, even if he was just a fly on the wall in all of that. And obviously, there is a big difference here in terms of the credibility of a witness like Cassidy Hutchinson and somebody like Rudy Giuliani or even a Lynn Wood. But those are the players in this drama. So how do prosecutors make sense of all of these witnesses? Joining me now are Christy Greenberg, former deputy chief of the criminal division at the Southern District of New York, and Melissa Redmond, former prosecutor in the Fulton County DA's office and now a professor of law at the University of Georgia School of Law. It's great to have both of you with us. Melissa, is it particularly meaningful to see Lynn Wood's name on a list of potential prosecution witnesses? He is very adamant that he is not cooperating per se, but can you see a reason why DA Fonnie Willis might call him to testify in the RICO case? I mean, is there anything we can glean from that filing today in terms of what kind of case she is building? Sure. I think what we can determine from her her placing Linwood on the witness list is that he has some testimony that she needs to get out during this trial. Right. So we know he testified um, before a grand jury previously pursuant to a subpoena. Um, He testified, I believe, for about an hour, hour and a half. And so whatever that testimony was is something that the DA wants to get out during the course of the trial. So she has to put him on the witness list. She has to give him a subpoena. We'll see whether or not he voluntarily complies with the subpoena or she has to have him declared as a material witness if he he refuses to come. Um, But we do know there is something, whether it was the meeting that he held in South Carolina or um, his actions in the lawsuit challenging the election results, there's some testimony he has that's valuable to her in the case. So speaking of what that testimony might be, this is a guy who since 2020 has definitely taken a reputational hit. He has advanced some conspiracy theories, not just about this election, but generally we don't even have the time for that. But what would be the advantage of putting somebody like a Linwood, who has also given up his law practice uh, or his law license because of the reputational risk? Why why put him on the stand? I mean, is, is that a risk? Well, so first he has criminal exposure, right? The special grand jury recommended charges against him. So if she is going to put him on the stand, Fannie Willis has, one, determined that after speaking to him that he is credible and truthful. Otherwise, you don't put a witness on the stand, generally speaking, if they aren't. And two, that they've dealt with whatever that criminal exposure is. There, You would expect some kind of immunity, at least based on the limited 
topics he may be asked about. Um, but, but barring that, he was in a position to know about these widespread election fraud claims. Remember, he and Sidney Powell were part of the Release the Kraken effort. That was right. how they branded that effort. And just like the Kraken being a mythical sea monster, we know so these is- widespread election fraud claims were mythical, too. And he's going to be able to exp- he's in a position, at least, to expose that. Um, so he could be a very valuable witness, just despite the fact that he's obviously had credibility issues. If you remember in the Eastern District of Michigan, when there was a sanction hearing, he tried to distance himself mm-hmm. from Sidney Powell in that Kraken effort. So maybe he has turned a corner despite what he's, what saying, he's saying publicly. publicly. Yeah, what he may be saying to Fannie Willis's office may be different than what he's saying to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, right? May well be. Um, Melissa, the new revelation about Rudy Giuliani and Cassidy Hutchinson's forthcoming book is... Obviously, the latest in a series of problems facing Giuliani. I mean, he was once Trump's lawyer and then um, played a very prominent role in trying to overturn the election. And there is another big problem for Giuliani that his, you know, his own attorney is suing him to recover, I believe, about one point three million dollars in unpaid legal fields. Are problems like Giuliani's something that a prosecutor as smart, as savvy as Fannie Willis is? could exploit or certainly at least pay attention to? Would it potentially make him a target for cooperation, given that he is so vulnerable and exposed right now? Well, it would depend on whether or not he would be useful to the prosecutor, whether or not he would be a credible witness. And so given his past statements and his actions, he might not be that valuable to D.A. Willis. But certainly if he has to make some personal decisions as to how far he wants to ride this train, he may very well approach the prosecutor to ask if there's something that they can work out, if he has some something of value that she needs to prove her case. But I, given his, his participation in the conspiracy or the alleged conspiracy, I would be doubtful if she would be the one to approach him in reference to any type of negotiation or or, or cooperation agreement. And Christy, speaking of legal fees, I want to play for you uh, what Peter Navarro said on this uh, on this network earlier today with my colleague Ari Melbourne. And obviously, Peter Navarro um, was indicted for um, contempt of Congress for not showing up. He was found guilty. Um, But there is something interesting that he revealed today, which is that Donald Trump has through a fund paid part of his legal fees. Take a listen. How much did he help uh, pay for your legal fees? Donald Trump. Uh, about $300,000. My legal fees are well in excess of six. Part of the problem here is this lawfare, this notion of if you can't put me in prison, you can at least bankrupt me. So is it interesting that Trump or perhaps even a fund associated with Trump is paying the likes of uh, the legal fees for the likes of somebody like Peter Navarro, even though he has not been indicted in the January 6th uh, probes that we're seeing or any other charges that Trump is facing. And, and what does this mean for people like a Sidney Powell uh, and uh, Lynn Wood? Well, the fact that Trump or some PAC associated with him is paying for his legal fees certainly gives every incentive for that, that person who's getting their legal p- fees paid for uh, to not necessarily provide damaging information to the prosecutors about that person. We don't know what other information Peter Navarro may have had that could be damaging to Trump. So uh, certainly every incentive is for him to stay on Donald Trump's good side or else, you know, the money dries up. Uh, Melissa, today you had lawyers uh, for three more of Donald Trump's co-defendants, the three so-called fake electors, uh, appeared in federal court arguing their cases to be moved there. 
Uh, you've got Jeffrey Clark's attorney arguing for his own case to be removed earlier this week. We are obviously still awaiting the federal judge's decision on that uh, specifically. But you had the former uh, chief of staff, Mark Meadows, appealing a ruling against moving his case when that was initially shut down. Do you have any predictions for where this whole effort goes from here? I fully anticipate if Judge Jones denies removal for the four we have now, uh, uh, Jeffrey Clark, as well as the three alternate electors or fake electors, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, that they would fully, uh, I fully expect that they would also appeal those rulings. Um, again, they have no incentive to get this case tried as soon as possible. Um, they very much want to be in federal court, so uh, they will exercise every opportunity they have to try to get in federal court. Um, it may change depending on if um, there is a ruling in the Meadows case before we have a ruling for, from Judge Jones on their case and they have an opportunity to appeal. Um, and, you know, they kind of can read the tea leaves based on the Meadows ruling. But other than that, I would expect as soon as Judge Jones um, issues a ruling, if it is a remand to state court, that they would appeal. Um, let me get your thoughts on this split screen that we saw today, Chris. And this was uh, switching gears a little bit to uh, Capitol Hill. Um, the attorney general, uh, Merrick Garland, being, you know, I guess just questioned and bombarded by Republicans for nearly six hours, accusing him of weaponizing the Department of Justice. Let me just play for you this clip and I'll get your reaction to it. I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. I just want to, as somebody who, who served as a federal prosecutor and, and worked in the DOJ, I just want to get your thoughts to how Republicans have now turned what they have done. I, I certainly believe everything they project is a, almost a confession of something that they have done. And especially when you think of what Donald Trump was trying to do with the DOJ, especially when you put somebody like Bill Barr in and then Jeffrey Clark in. And what do you make of what you saw today? I mean, Merrick Garland is obviously not the president's lawyer. The president's son was just indicted by a special counsel that, you know, Garland cleared the way to have those charges be brought because he allowed for that special counsel process to happen. Um, The fact that the president's son has now been charged with charges uh, that are legally questionable and as well as, you know, questionable from a um, a standpoint of fairness. You know, most people who have, you know, situations where they're an addict don't necessarily find themselves and, and had possessed a gun for 11 days don't find themselves being right. charged. I never saw charges like that when I was a prosecutor. So he's clearly not the president's lawyer. Uh, and, you know, it, it's exactly what you said. It's, it, you know, looking at the January 6th indictment in D.C., uh, looking at the charges against, you know, Jeffrey Clark in uh, in Georgia, you can see it's exactly the opposite, that Donald Trump did everything he could to weaponize the Department of Justice. You know, the, the best defense is a good offense, and that's what they're doing here. And as I said, I still believe that every projection with Republicans is in some ways a confession about what they did or what they were trying to do. Uh, Christy Greenberg, Melissa Redmond, thank you to the both of you. Greatly appreciate you starting us off this evening. And this quick programming note to be sure to tune in next Monday when Rachel Maddow will interview Cassidy Hutchinson about her new book. This will be Hutchinson's first live interview since testifying publicly before the January 6th committee. That is 9 p.m. Eastern on Monday right here on MSNBC. We have a lot more to come tonight, including President Biden trying to channel FDR with a New Deal style program to tackle climate change. But first, 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy trying to hang on amid the chaos from inside his own party. More on that next. Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter, but exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. What do, you, what, do you say to, what do you say to people back home who may not follow this that closely, but just expect you guys to get this very basic function of your job done and fund the government? We're dysfunctional. It's just that simple. That simple. We are that we are so dysfunctional. Uh, you know, we've got we've got nobody at the head. Nobody at the head. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett echoing a bipartisan sentiment right now that is spreading all over Capitol Hill. That with 10 days left to avert a government shutdown, House Republicans are dysfunctional. Now, multiple votes brought forth by Speaker Kevin McCarthy have been stymied by his own party, including a bill to fund the Pentagon. This afternoon, with things at a standstill, Republicans huddled behind closed doors to once again try and reach some kind of compromise on funding. And it sounds like there may be some kind of tentative progress. I think we've got a plan to move forward, um, going to DOD and then going to a number of other appropriation bills. And, uh, and what about the CR, sir? Uh, we're, we're very close there. I, I feel I just got a little more movement to go there. All right. But with Speaker McCarthy facing multiple attacks from within his own party this week, a little more movement actually could still be a very long way to go. Joining me now is someone who has been closely following what she calls the rage of the toddler caucus on Capitol Hill. Susan Glasser of The New Yorker. She's back on the show. Susan, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here. So you heard Kevin McCarthy say they are very close on a continuing resolution. Do you believe him? Well, define very close. Uh, if you uh, say that very close means actually very, very far away, then maybe you're there. Look, this is the silly season in Congress. Unfortunately, uh, it is almost made inevitable by the very close House majority that Republicans won last year in the elections. Remember, it took 15 ballots just for McCarthy to become speaker back in January. So in, in a big picture sense, it's not a surprise he was going to face a rebellion like this one. But, you know, the Republicans in Congress are a party divided and they're not even divided neatly into two camps. Uh, you know, there's a fragmentation that's gone on here that makes it almost impossible for McCarthy. He can corral one group and then another group could raise their hands and object to the last minute, too. So they seem intent on crashing the country into another self-made crisis. And speaking of one of those camps, you've got Matt Gates. He has been one of the Republicans leading the anti-McCarthy charge since at least 
January when he forced or was part of the people that forced 15 ballots before McCarthy was eventually elected as speaker. Is there anything Kevin McCarthy can do to win Matt Gates on his side? Because just based on the rhetoric, just the language that Matt Gates has been using to describe Kevin McCarthy, it looks like there is a serious problem. Yes, it does look like there's a serious problem indeed. Uh, you know, look, even the bargaining chips that these members of Congress, even what they want is not clear. That really struck me the other day when McCarthy was asked by some reporters in the Capitol, well, what, you know, what's going on? What do they want? And he said, I don't even know. And when you're bargaining with people who can't even articulate what it is that they would accept as a bottom line in order to avert this crisis, then you know on some level that we're in trouble. I keep thinking of the line from succession, these are not serious people. And he finds himself in this predicament right now because um, of how he needs to get this bill passed. McCarthy was asked earlier today if he thought it was possible to vote on a uh, continuing resolution without having to tap into the Democrats. No Democrats on board. Listen to what he said. Is it actually possible to pass something with just Republican votes? I believe so. Look, uh, those are the same people that we have dealt with with all the other legislation we've done. So given that his own party derailed the Pentagon bill and all his other bills this week alone, does McCarthy sound overly optimistic? Uh, well, he is an optimist or he wouldn't be uh, in this job because uh, it requires arguably the patience of Job to deal with, uh, you know, this kind of threat from any single member in his conference. Literally any single member in his conference could at any moment press a, a vote to vacate the chair and to oust him. That was a key concession that McCarthy gave back in January in order to win the speakership in the first place. So, you know, in the end, he is, it strikes me, a hostage, but a more or less willing hostage to this faction of far right members in his own Congress. So if you can, I mean, I want to play this for you, Matt Gates, speaking on that specific issue, if McCarthy does tap into the Democrats and has to go the bipartisan route on government funding. Listen to what Matt Gates said, and I'll get your thoughts on it. If Speaker McCarthy relies on Democrats to pass a continuing resolution, uh, I would call the Capitol moving truck to his office pretty soon, because my expectation would be he'd be out of the Speaker's office quite promptly. So put that in perspective for us. How weak is Kevin McCarthy as a result of that sentiment from Matt Gates? Look, he is a weak speaker uh, because he doesn't have a, a functioning governing majority. At the same time, I would note that just last week, McCarthy was already very frustrated and furious with Matt Gates, who was essentially trying to blackmail him. And he already uh, was reported to say in his own conference, you know, if he wants to threaten me and make me scared, bring the effing motion, bring the effing motion to vacate the chair. And I would note that Matt Gates has not actually yet brought the motion. Uh, so that, that tells you a little bit about, uh, you know, the sort of kabuki theater that they're engaging in. Um, if it's not Kevin McCarthy that the right flank of the party is listening to, who do you think it is? <laughs> uh, you know, look, uh, there is a big difference between uh, members of Congress like Matt Gates and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene 
And, you know, there are different factions in, in the House, not to mention the Senate Republicans who, who marched to the beat of a different drummer as well. Uh, Donald Trump remains, uh, as uh, uh, Liz Cheney so memorably quoted another Republican House member uh, last year, called him their orange Jesus. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, he is uh, in the process of running away with the Republican nomination. He was, you know, discussing plans to launch an impeachment inquiry in the House uh, with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene days before McCarthy agreed to it. So, you know, he is at, at a very minimum, they're sort of, um, you know, ideological leader, uh, if you will, of this band. Um, yeah, couldn't agree with you more on that. Never heard Orange Jesus before. I'm not sure how I feel about how I feel about that one. Uh, Susan Glasser, it's always great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And we have a lot more news to get to tonight, including what is behind the embrace between Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Elon Musk and what it means for the trafficking of anti-Semitism on the latter social media platform. But first, President Biden this week implored world leaders to help tackle the climate crisis. My administration, the United States, has treated this crisis as an existential threat from the moment we took office not only for us, but for all of humanity. And today he announced another big step in that effort, announcing a new New Deal style initiative. We're going to have more on that coming up right after the break. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. First, we are giving opportunity of employment to a quarter of a million of the unemployed especially the young men who have dependents, let them go into forestry and flood prevention work. That is a big task because it means feeding and clothing and caring for nearly twice as many men as we have in the regular army itself. And in creating this civilian conservation corps, we are killing two birds with one stone. We are clearly enhancing the value of our natural resources, and at the same time, we are relieving an appreciable amount of actual distress. All right. So what you just heard there uh, was a clip from a 1933 fireside chat by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in which he pitched the nation on something that had never been done before, a novel idea. It was a civilian conservation corps that would eventually uh, put millions of Americans to work during the Great Depression. Now, this New Deal program actually helped build America's public lands. Billions of trees were planted. Hundreds of state parks uh, and trails were built. And in fact, it was among the fastest civilian mobilizations in American history, and it became incredibly popular at the time. So it is no wonder that President Biden would want to build upon that legacy and draw inspiration from it and fulfill a campaign promise he made back in 2020. 
Today, the Biden administration announced the announced, excuse me, the launch of the Civilian Climate Corps, which it says aims to create more than 20,000 jobs uh, in the growing fields of clean energy, conservation and climate resilience. Climate organizers, including groups like the Sunrise Movement and Democratic lawmakers, have been pushing for Biden to launch this program by executive order ever since it was negotiated out of the Inflation Reduction Act. And while this is a smaller version of what uh, the original IRA proposal was, and much, much smaller than FDR's New Deal initiative, many are calling it a notable step towards addressing today's climate crisis. Joining me now is Gina McCarthy, former White House National Climate Advisor for President Biden and former EPA Administrator under President Obama. Uh, Gina, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for for coming to New York and joining us here on set. Even though you're from Boston, we appreciate it. But, you know, there's two ways to look at this, right? Every step counts. I think most people would agree. Anything to help climate change or to fight climate change is important. But then you look at the scale of this and trying to understand what is it actually doing. And the focus of this is more on mitigation than on prevention. How important is this realistically? And is it more symbolic than impactful? I think it's important because we know young people care about the challenge of climate change and they want to participate. This is about actual job training opportunities in clean energy, which is our future. And it's also resilient so that if a disaster strikes, there's more ability to protect people. And so this is giving young people a real opportunity, especially young people that come from, you know, communities that aren't rich, Mm. communities that really need these jobs. And these young people will be able to get that type of experience. Plus, they're going to get a little boost and reduction in, in their their college tuition. So this has a lot of makings of something It's a, that is really a great start and could end up continuing to move forward because they'll get clean energy jobs. They'll be, they'll be already experienced and they'll know what they're doing. And so this is a great opportunity for us, I think, for young people to get some jobs and experience. Can you, can you expand on that part of it a little bit? Because I, I know that you were you know, privy to the initial negotiations around um, the IRA, mm-hmm. um, which was to set up a climate court. But what are the jobs of the future that areas that are impoverished and, and these people, these young people that you're talking about are going to pursue? Yeah, clean energy jobs can be as as simple as you work with a community to identify a strategy to reduce greenhouse gases. You actually work with them to look at all the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act, especially the consumer benefits. You teach them how to access these rebates and these tax credits. You look at opportunities to actually go into natural resource areas to help clear land, to get the underbrush out and save the uh, the the. Uh, lower the opportunity for fire damage to happen. So there's just a wide variety of opportunities. And it's I'm sure it's going to be really exciting and potentially be oversubscribed is my guess. Let's hope so. That would certainly be good news, I think. Um, you, I don't know if you caught the earlier segment. We had a clip from a congressman from Tennessee just describing uh, Washington as dysfunctional. And so I guess my question to you, and I'm sure that's not that's not a surprise to you. I think he was specifically talking about Capitol Hill in Congress. But should the president rely more on executive order to deal with the issue of climate change, given the the time crunch civilization finds itself in when nothing is getting done on Capitol Hill? Should he rely more on executive order in any capacity to fight climate change? Well, I think the thing to remember is that he's gotten things done 
on the Hill. I mean, we're talking about the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is really allowing us to have more resilient infrastructure. And then you're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is more than $370 billion. And we're already in one year when this this bill extends these credits and tax rebates and other things for it, some of them 10 years. Mm. In the first year, we've already seen $278 billion of investments. So we're talking about huge success already that ought to continue. There's no reason why it wouldn't. This is money that's going to red and blue states. And they're taking these dollars and they're really making a lot of it because I not so much that they're standing up and uh, saying, bravo, we're addressing climate change. They're saying, bravo, we're creating an economic future for our country, a healthier future, one that actually focuses investment on the communities left behind. Speaking of economic futures, I want to ask you and get your thoughts on something we were just talking about in the break, and that is the global south. A lot of the attention this week has been on trying to focus resources to the global south, not because they are the largest contributors of, of pollution to our planet. In fact, Perhaps the opposite. We know that it's come from the developing world and China. Um, But how do you begin to recalibrate the thinking about the resources that need to be sent to the global south to help with their economic future? I think the first thing you have to do is reconcile that while the U.S. is moving forward and and with the Inflation Reduction Act and other things, we are sort of moving the other uh, countries in the developed world to actually do take similar action. But what we have to recognize is that is that the rest of the world needs to engage. The populations are large. The poverty can be extreme. They need economic development solutions. They need sustainable energy. They need the support of the de- of the developed world to actually ensure that they have the same opportunities that we have. You know as well as I, we're the ones that emitted most of the greenhouse gases. Yeah. We still are. And it's really time for for us to step up and use our our, uh, private sector and public sector to work together to find benefits that will benefit all of us. Yeah, let's hope we can do it sooner than later. We certainly need it. Uh, Gene McCarthy, thank you so much. It's great to be on. Thank you. All right. We have a lot more ahead tonight, including Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's tough talk at the United Nations General Assembly over Russian aggression directed at the United Nations itself. Stay with us. Last weekend was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year celebrated across the globe. And right at the end of that high holiday, Donald Trump decided to post this to his social media site. Just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel because you believed false narratives. Let's hope you learned from your mistakes and make better choices moving forward. Happy New Year. An attack on liberal Jews during the high holidays is shocking inappropriate and the kind of thing you might expect from the former president on his website. But if you are hoping things are better over on the other social media sites, well, I've got some bad news for you. Elon Musk, owner of the website formerly known as Twitter, chose to celebrate the holiday weekend by trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish billionaires, saying, quote, the Soros organization appears to want nothing less than the destruction of Western civilization. For weeks, if you haven't been following, Elon Musk has been locked in a battle with the Anti-Defamation League. 
America's most prominent organization dedicated to combating anti-Semitism. And during that fight, Musk has elevated prominent white supremacists and echoed their calls to ban the Anti-Defamation League from his platform. He even appeared to endorse comments from a known Irish white nationalist who self-identifies as a raging anti-Semite. But that did not stop the leader of the world's only Jewish state from meeting with Musk this week and praising him for all things his commitment to fighting anti-Semitism. I also know your opposition to anti-Semitism. You've spoken about it, tweeted about it, and I know you're committed to that. I hope, I hope you succeed in it. It's not an easy task, but I, I encourage you and urge you to find a balance. It's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, I think generally, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of against uh, attacking any group. You know, um, doesn't matter who it is. I'm, you know, this is, I'm, I'm in favor of that which furthers civilization. Well, um, this is not n- not a new game for the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In fact, he has met with leaders like Turkey's President Tayyip Erdogan, who has also trafficked in anti-Semitism. He's formed a close alliance with Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban, a man notorious for embracing anti-Semitic language, and in fact, even plastered the nation of Hungary with George Soros conspiracy signs. Even as Benjamin Netanyahu faces backlash at home for his anti-democratic reforms, he is meeting with some of the more strident right-wingers on the national stage. That may be why he is embracing Elon Musk and why Elon Musk is embracing him. I still ahead tonight. It is a day. It is day three of the United Nations General Assembly and things are heating up as the Ukrainian president squared off with the Russian ambassador calling the country a terrorist state. We're going to have more on those remarks in the UN's response next. The only source of this war is Russia, but this has changed nothing for Russia in the United Nations. However, these are the situations that have changed everything for the UN. We should recognize that the UN finds itself in a deadlock on the matters of aggression. Uh, Today in the United Nations Security Council meeting, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky denounced Russia as a terrorist state while sitting across from the Russian ambassador, who was seen scrolling through his phone as Zelensky spoke. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov left the room even before the remarks began. Zelensky also called out the UN for its inability to meaningfully curb Russia's aggression. In his first in-person appearance at the UN General Assembly since Russia invaded his country, The Ukrainian president has had to walk a fine line, rendering criticism while seeking more aid from allies who face increasing domestic pressure to end aid commitments. But some countries are actually finding ways to work around domestic political pressure to get Ukraine the help it is asking for. Joining us now is Ambassador William Taylor, former U.S. envoy uh, to Ukraine. Ambassador Taylor, thank you for being here tonight. Greatly appreciate it. Um, Let me start with this interesting report that we learned about that the U.S. It's from The Intercept, um, and it's that the U.S. is secretly uh, has secretly brokered a deal with Pakistan to provide weapons for Ukraine in exchange for an urgently needed bailout from the International Monetary Fund earlier this year. Let me just get your your reactions to this reporting and this practice. So, I mean, uh, the U.S. government, um, the Pentagon, but uh, the State Department as well, are they've been searching for weapons and ammunition the right kinds of ammunition that the Ukrainians can use all over the world. Um, and they have gone to great lengths uh, to identify some, some nations 
don't want to send their weapons or their ammunition directly to Ukraine, but they're willing to send it to us, uh, to the United States. Um, and so we've gone to great lengths to find this for the Ukrainians. As you've been reporting, uh, the Ukrainians are going through the ammunition very heavily, very quickly. And there are a lot of nations out there that can do this. And so it's not surprising um, that we're doing everything we can to come up with more weapons, more ammunition to keep the Ukrainians in the fight, allow them to push the Russians out of their country. That's the only thing they're after. And we can help them do that by by providing the weapons both from our stocks, our, our manufacturers, as well as those around the world. You certainly know um, the relationship Pakistan has with India, and I'm curious to get your thoughts if that complicates things. I mean, India has taken a neutral stance in Russia's conflict with Ukraine. Um, but according to The Intercept's reporting, Pakistan, uh, which it's, you know, obviously, as we mentioned, is now sending arms to Ukraine. Do you see this as a potential for tension given in India uh, and Pakistan's complicated history that they are now perceived in the Russia-Ukraine war to be on differing sides? Well, you're right, Eamon. It's certainly the case that the Indians have tried to stay neutral in this. Uh, they've taken advantage of the low cost oil and gas uh, that uh, that the Russians have been have had to offer because of the price cap. So the the Indians have been uh, looking to take advantage of that. The Pakistanis uh, and and Indians they've got a rough relationship. They've got a tense relationship all along. I don't think the Pakistanis providing weapons or ammunition to the Ukrainians is going to affect that relationship. The Indians have not been aggressively supporting the Russians and the Pakistanis have been have been supportive of the Ukrainians. Ukraine's grain, as you mentioned, has become very expensive because of uh, Russia's blockage, uh, blockage um, and blocking and blockade of Kiev's exports. Poland is one of three Ukrainian allies banning the import of that grain, causing considerable strain on ties with Kiev. Do you think this rift could cause Poland to back out of helping Ukraine? Or is it a rare and singular display of division between Kiev and some of its European allies? I think it's more the latter. I mean, I think it's more the latter. It's a, it's a rare display. And there are, as we know, as we know, there are politics in all things. So the Poles have an election coming up. Uh, farmers are an important constituency, as they are everywhere. So there's a there's really an intent intent on the part of the Polish government to be seen to defending the, the farmers. And at the same time, they are among the strongest supporters of Ukraine and they continue to be the strongest among the strongest supporters of Ukraine, both on weapons, on taking in refugees um, and, and a range of issues that are being very helpful to Ukrainians. And they're not backing off of that. There are politics and there are issues that they have to do, things that they have to say um, as as the election approaches. But I don't think this is a sign of a rift between Poland and Ukraine. Let me, if I can, widen the conversation to some other news uh, taking place at the U.N. And you had the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, sitting down with Fox News uh, in an interview that aired earlier today. What do you make of the rehabilitation of Saudi Arabia and the comeback of the crown prince that he is making almost five years to the, to the day that Jamal Khashoggi uh, was killed in Turkey? No one should forget that. No one should forget how that uh, that person died. Um, and no one will. Uh, that said, um, as we've seen, leaders from around the world have dealt with other leaders from around the world. Sometimes you have to deal with people you don't agree with, don't respect. 
Um, but there are issues that you have to interact with people. And this is what's happening with uh, uh, with the Saudis. All right. Ambassador William Taylor, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you. Ayman. And that is our show for this evening. I'm Ayman Mohideen in for Alex Wagner. You can catch me every weekend at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel.